Welcome to the FCBC NYC podcast. We're so thankful that you decided to join us in this moment and in this season in your life. Our prayer is that this podcast will be a catalyst for conversion and transformation and that you will be inspired and renewed in such a tremendous way that your desire will be to be your best for God. Again, thank you for listening, and we're excited to see what is next in your life. We are an ever-evolving community. Called to live, commanded to love, and commissioned to serve. And here's how we say it at FCBC. We live, we love. That's music to my ears. Listen, I, I, uh, many years ago, I was, uh, when I was in divinity school, I had to, we had a, a, a washing machine at the house that worked. This is back in, well, even after that, North Carolina. But the dryer didn't work. Some of y'all know about that. So I had to take the wet clothes to the laundromat um, to dry them. You know, the wet clothes get he are heavy. And and uh, I would go and sometimes Trey, he was young, would help me. And I never forget that one day I was in there and I had on a fraternity jacket. And a woman was walking by. I don't know what face she was, but she came in the laundromat, saw my jacket. And she said, are you saved? And I said, you know, now here I was. I was a preacher. All that. I said, well, I don't know. I said, but why would you ask me? She said, well, I saw you wearing that jacket. And, and, I, and I just, and I didn't, and I think that that's like kind of worshiping the devil. I said, wow. He said, I just want to know, are you saved? And so I, and then I asked, I said, well, let me ask you, is this what you call evangelism? I said, by asking me, am I saved? I said, I said, because, you know, and I was playing coy. I was like, you know, I don't know the Bible that much. I said, but I don't see where Jesus went around asking people, are you saved? So then I asked, I said, so. So where are you getting your evangelism strategy from? Because as far as I look at the Bible, this is not Jesus's evangelism strategy. I think many of us at some point in time have been asked or been taught, and we talk about, are you saved? And then when you think about the scripture, you know, the one who kind of set this language in motion is the apostle Paul. And you find in two different places in Romans, he says things like, if you... Believe with your heart, confess with your mouth, you shall be saved. And another part of Romans, he says, you know, that we are saved by grace through faith. So that saved language is interesting. It doesn't really come up with Jesus. But for us, salvation, we believe, according to tradition, means that not that you will no longer sin, but sin won't penalize you so that you won't inherit eternal life. So salvation 
is in the tradition eternal life, right? So are you saved? I say this because I want to tackle this this morning in a different way. And so if you would, in the Gospel of Luke, a very, very familiar story. But here's what I know. I think this may be one of the most profound stories that Jesus tells. And the significance of it has not always been dealt with effectively. And so in Luke, the 10th chapter, I want to read, it's rather extended, verses 25 through 37. And this is the parable, as we know it, in most Bible says, the Good Samaritan. You know, the people who named it that, the Good Samaritan, well, Jesus didn't do that. You know, if you know anything about the story, Samaritan and Jews were enemies because Jewish people did not believe that Samaritans were pure or were religiously pure. And so Samaritans did not get along with Jews and Jews did not get along with Samaritans. Jesus never told the story of a good Samaritan. He just told the story of a Samaritan. Those of us who still find reasons or want reasons to be angry, name it good Samaritan. Because as if every Samaritan doesn't have the possibility of being good. I want you to catch that. So this is the story of the Samaritan, according. Luke 10, 25 through 37. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's put it again. What must I do to be what? Ah. He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, other translations say, but wanting to test Jesus. He asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the lawyer that is, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Come on, let's pray. God, we honor you. We bless your name on today. And we are grateful for how you continue to make yourself manifest in this place. God, we thank you for life and strength. We thank you, oh God, that we were able to wake up one more day. 
and behold the beauty and grandeur of your creation. God, sometimes we learn late, but thank you for reminding us that we ought to celebrate every morning we wake up. Give you thanks. And then make sure that the life we live on that day reflects who you've been in our lives. We have a responsibility with this gift. Thank you for trusting us with it. Now, oh God, do whatever you need to do in the next few moments to get the glory. Let your word do its own work. We'll make sure we give you all the honor and the praise. This is our prayer. In your name we pray. Amen. Remain standing with me. Let me just read the beginning of that story. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do me a favor. Turn to your neighbor and just ask them a simple question. Neighbor, are you saved? Come on, turn to the other neighbor and just ask them again. Neighbor, are you saved? Now put your hands together and give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Are you saved? This story has been told from so many different perspectives in so many different ways. But today I want to begin this story speaking from the perspective of those who often have been overlooked in this whole narrative, and that is the disciples. Most of us read it and we see the interaction between the man, the lawyer, and Jesus in the conversation that takes place. The lawyer and Jesus are not talking amongst themselves. Jesus is followed by the disciples. And there's always been a crowd around in Jesus' travels. Jesus is now making his way to Jerusalem. And we know that when Jesus ultimately gets to Jerusalem, it becomes the place of his ultimate sacrifice. He will be crucified. But on the way there, there are a number of things that happens in Luke's gospel, Matthew and Mark's that indicate not just Jesus's destination, but the journey. In the ninth chapter of Luke, a pivotal chapter for so many reasons, because at the end of that chapter, we get from Jesus lessons for those of us who would follow him. Somewhere in mid chapter nine, not chapter 10 that I read, but in chapter nine, something interesting happens, Mary. Jesus is again making his way to Jerusalem, and he wants to go through a Samaritan village. Now, the disciples and Jesus know that Samaritans are the enemies of the Jews, but Jesus, instead of doing what most Jewish people did at the time, which was go around Samaritan villages because of not wanting to have contact with Samaritans, Jesus decides to go through a Samaritan village to get to the other side. Quicker journey. When he gets to the village with his disciples, Story says in the ninth chapter that the Samaritans in the village refuse to accept him. They reject Jesus and his followers from passing through their village. When they reject Jesus and when they, Jesus and his disciples feel the rejection, the disciples get angry. They get angry and they say, teacher, do you want us to call down fire from the heavens? and destroy this village. Jesus says, no. He says, we must keep moving. That scene doesn't really ring bells for us when we read the gospel, but it is pivotal. 
because Jesus and his disciples have just been rejected by Samaritans. As they still make their journey towards Jerusalem, this is when a lawyer comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or what must I do to be what? Saved. Jesus says, well, what does the word say? What does the law say? Because he's a lawyer. What does the law say? Now, it's interesting because in Matthew and Mark's version of this story, Jesus actually says the words, the teachings from the Old Testament. But here, Jesus asks the man because he wants to see if the one who's asking about salvation, asking about eternal life, actually knows it himself. He says, what does the law say? The man said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, good. Do it, and you will live. My God. Do it, and you will live. That line, I think, needs to be inside, above, somewhere of every place that claims to be a church. I'm thinking about that now, where we need to put this in this building. Because what I've realized in this journey, we've seen it played out in so many ways in this culture and in this country. There are many people who know it rightly, who speak it rightly, who have the right answers, who know the right scriptures, who know the right reference points. But there's a gap between saying it, knowing it, and doing it. Oh, my God. There's so many people who think that all you have to do, like Paul, is confess and believe. But Paul makes no mention of doing. And Jesus says knowing is not enough. He tells the man, if you want eternal life, if you want to be saved, he says do it. And he doesn't say you'll inherit eternal life. Do it and you will live. And somehow your life will be shaped by your capacity to embody the words you know. To not just talk it, but show it in your living. And then the lawyer wanting to test Jesus, justify himself, says, well, teacher, who is my neighbor? Jesus then tells this magnificent story. There was a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And as he tells the story, look at the nuances of it. He said, the man had fallen upon robbers, bandits. They beat him, leaving him almost to the brink of death, bloody and wounded and broken. A priest comes. Priests had the responsibility of not only declaring the word, the law, to the people, but also interpreting the law. The priest sees Charles, the man broken, and they cross the other side. It's an amazing how people can interpret the scripture, but can't interpret brokenness. He engages in what most of us would do, I think, in some ways, self-preservation. Crosses the other side. Then Jesus says, a Levite comes along. My God. The Levites were not the interpreters of the law. The scripture says historically through the Old Testament, they were the handler of the sacred things of the temple. They handled the holy artifacts. They knew how to handle the sacred things, but apparently this man's broken body wasn't sacred enough. And they crossed, the Levite crosses to the other side. 
Now, what you have to hear is those who are listening to this, who are presumably Jews, are hearing a scandalous story being told. A story that really was problematic for those who put utmost respect in priests and Levites. That in the face of need, the priest and the Levite acted selfishly and ignored the woundedness of the man on the road to Jericho. As they hear this, this had to sting a little bit because even though Jesus comes to show another way of being, another way of living, another way of engaging God, there are still those who hold on to the old allegiances connected to honoring the law. And so this had to hurt a little bit, especially if in the crowd, if we don't know it, it doesn't say it, if there were some priests or Levites, this had to hurt. And so here comes the cruelest cut of them all next. He said, but then a Samaritan comes along. The Samaritan sees the man wounded. He tends the wounds, pours oil and wine on the wounds to clean the wounds. He bandages the man, puts the man up on his horse, his donkey, whatever mode of transportation used, took the man to an inn. Spent the night with him, taking care of him. The next day, told the innkeeper after he left him money, he said, on my way back, if this when I left you is not enough, I'll give you more. What we do know is that Samaritan has resources, clearly, because it wasn't something uh, to bypass that he had oil and wine on ready, right? He had the resources, money to take care. He was a man of some measure of wealth. But now in that moment, he understands that what good is it to have if you don't know how to use it to help somebody else? He helps the man and tends to him. And in that moment, right there, when Jesus told that part of the story, everybody probably felt some kind of way. But the disciples had to really feel some kind of way. They had just been rejected by Samaritans. And here Jesus is, after having been rejected, tells a story and makes the hero a Samaritan. Can you imagine, I know this is going to be a little painful because this story ain't easy. Can you imagine that Jesus gives a lesson to the disciples of how to deal with rejection? You make the rejector a hero. Oh, you got to hear that. I know that's not easy to take. The one who rejected him, Jesus now makes a hero. He does not castigate or ostracize or demonize. He elevates the rejectors. You see, that's why I know this faith is not easy. Because in that moment, a whole lot of us would have said a whole lot of other things. Other than making Samaritans look good after they made us feel bad. And he tells a story there. Can you grasp that story? That part of it? That's the challenge of this faith. That's the challenge of this movement to move counter to what your instincts may be, to operate counter to what your social training may tell you. 
And now we call that story the story of the Good Samaritan. I, I heard Barbara Brown Taylor once say, she said, to really understand what Jesus is doing and how painful and difficult a lesson it was for the disciples, she said, imagine the person you hate the most. I know hate is big. But the person you dislike the most, you maybe despise, can't stand. She said, and when you think about Good Samaritan, say good and put that person's name after good. You see how hard this thing is? This is why everybody loves being a Christian, but everybody don't like being a disciple. Because a disciple puts a different kind of pressure on who you are. It puts a different kind of responsibility on who you are. It says that part of your discipleship journey is to not allow those who may demonize you, dehumanize you, degrade you, turn you into them. I hope you get that. You can't hate the monster and then become the monster. You can't condemn and critique behavior and then repeat it. You can't be a slave and just pray about being a master one day. This is why this teaching is so hard. And this is why this parable, this story, may be the hardest thing that Jesus teaches. For those who think this walk is about these quick fix formulas and these cute sayings and these cliches and hooping and hollering and running. No, it's about reorienting your entire life in a way that you no longer allow the forces that seek to destroy you remake you. That is what this journey is about. That's why probably so many people today who use Christianity as a weapon to destroy people often quote something from the Old Testament, jump over to Paul, but ignore Jesus completely. Because it's hard to use Jesus to justify your prejudice. Hard to use Jesus to justify your bigotry. Hard to use Jesus to justify the boundaries you establish on false premises. Especially somehow if you think that somehow your color or your status or your position gives you a right to feel superior to somebody else. You can't do that in Jesus' name. See, what I'm suggesting is that there's another way of seeing this world. Don't let persons who use Christianity to veil their bigotry, prejudice, or hate to define it for you. No! Uh-uh. Uh-uh, there's a line in Luke 16 that most believers never really read, haven't they? It's so powerful. Luke's in this Jesus. He says, watch this. Up until John the Baptist, it was the prophets and the law. In other words, up until the arrival of John, the law and the prophets shaped how we live. He said, but since John, now, it's the kingdom of God and the good news. Hold on. What do you mean? This is Jesus speaking. This ain't Pastor Mike. He said, the way that you are ordered your life is based on the teachings of the good news. But here it is. It makes sense. Because most of us who claim to be this don't honor the good news. Things like the oppressed will be set free. The needy will have needs met. 
Those who are marginalized will find a resting in place with Jesus. I mean, all this stuff is good news, but we don't like good news. Why do we don't like good news? Because we most of many of us, not most, many of us spend our days trying to figure out who's in and who's out. Oh, let me put it differently. We're trying to figure out who's saved and who's not. Because after all, if you're not saved, then I'm better than you. If you're not saved, then I'm justified in looking down upon you. If you're not saved, then I know where you're going to hell. Can you imagine that? That we spend our time trying to figure out who's going to heaven or hell, trying to figure out who's in or who's out, and we then use scripture to justify our ignorance, and we know it, we quote it, we recite it the wrong way. We don't exegete, which means interpret. We eisegete, which means makes the scripture say what you want it to say. We then pick and pull, pick and choose certain pieces of scripture to then justify our ignorance, our anger, our hatred we want then we want there it is then we want god to get on our side with our ignorance we want god to hate who we hate god don't like who we don't like so here it is we get mad with god for having the audacity to say that god has people bigger than you who claim you're saved and here it is here it is he says the samaritan and the disciples had to cringe this is not a fellowship of your friends only. This is not a gathering of those who you cool with only. Because if the gospel is anything, it's available for all who are willing to hear it. And then your position as a disciple is not to sit around trying to rain fire down on people you don't like. He tells a story. The lawyer hears it. And then look what happens. Jesus then flips it. Can you imagine? He asked Jesus a question, who is my neighbor? Because that question is loaded. Who is my neighbor? Who ought I include in my life? Who ought to be within the boundaries that I draw? to be okay with? Who should I really associate with with my saved, sanctified self? Who should I build relationships with? Because after all, we ain't supposed to be unequally yoked. And yet there Jesus is showing a relationship of need and the people who should have done the right thing ignored it. And the one who was expected to do the wrong thing did the right thing. Hey, I got to go to Barbara Brown Taylor. I love her. She hit me with a question. This thing messed me up when I heard it. One day she made a statement that maybe the problem is so much of our doctrines and creeds and ways we use to test people, whether they good or bad, in or out. Maybe the problem is we've been basing it on ideas, theories, and belief and not practice. She said, what if our practice leads the way versus the faith we claim to know? Well, you don't get it yet? Okay, watch this. Here's where she hits me in the head. She said, I wonder if you would have asked the Jewish man in the ditch before he was robbed who his neighbor was, what the answer would have been. Maybe that man would have said, well, surely not Samaritans. But can I tell you something? The theology you create in a ditch is rather different. 
You see, because in that ditch, you don't care what the person looks like, what they believe. Notice that when a Samaritan comes upon the man, he doesn't first ask, are you a Jew or Samaritan? Are you rich or are you poor? He asks no questions that would suggest some level of status or understanding. He simply sees no conversation and he responds to the need of the man in the ditch. No talk. Just action. And when Jesus tells his story, he then flips back to the lawyer. Now you tell me, who was the neighbor to the man? But hold on, Jesus, that ain't what the lawyer asked you. Did you catch that in this text? The man said, who is my neighbor? Because that man was looking for Jesus again to help him determine who was in and out. At the end, Jesus said, now you tell me who was the neighbor to the man. You see that subtle shift? And maybe that lawyer still couldn't bring himself to say Samaritan. That's why he can't say it. He was still, even in the face of being hit in the head by Jesus' teaching, still held on possibly to a little bit of prejudice he had. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. You know what he said? The one who showed mercy. That's who was the name, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus hit him again when he hit him with before. He said, good, do it. And you will live. Hold on. Let me give this translation. Do it and you'll be saved. Do it and you'll have eternal life. Wait a minute. I thought once saved, always saved. Well, hold on. Jesus saying, show mercy. And, and you don't show mercy one time. You keep on showing mercy. Do it. Show mercy. Hold on. We're going to reimagine this. You mean we've been asking the wrong questions? And now, may, mind you, this teaching ain't from Paul. This is Jesus. You mean if we are Christians following the teachings of Jesus, and this is not to condemn Paul. I don't have nothing to do with that. But watch this. Jesus' salvation is not once for all. And Jesus' salvation, by the way, costs you something. Because you can confess and believe and do nothing. You can accept that through faith you are saved by grace and do nothing. But for Jesus, salvation, it requires a change in your habit, practice, and how you see the world and see yourself. So to be saved, beloved, so you can have a new definition of salvation. To be saved means to be merciful, according to Jesus. When you show mercy, you experience salvation anew every time you are merciful. That means salvation keeps on being experienced. It is not a decision to be made. It is a life to be lived. I hope you get this and taking this in today. So next time somebody says, are you saved? Tell them yes, every day. Every day, I'm working out my salvation by showing mercy every moment of my life. Why? To whom much is given, much is required. And I notice some of y'all in here today who can say that you have received 
mercy in your life, that someone has been merciful to you. And your responsibility ain't to walk away and just say thank you. It is to create a lineage of mercy with your life. And if you've felt mercy, seen mercy, experienced it, you felt the love and compassion, how dare you not show mercy every day of your life? Because that is what it means to be saved, to be merciful. It is not about a status. It is about a way of being. Are you merciful? Because when you show mercy, you can then, for real, for real, tell somebody, I'm saved. Not through my words, not through some confession, but my life is merciful. That compassion and love are who I am. And every day, I'm working out salvation. But not just for me, to those who receive the mercy. And why do I give it? Because if it had not been for God in my life, I don't know where I would be. In fact, I have no choice but to be merciful because God shows me mercy every single day of my life. And if I've received it, I got to give it every single day of my life. Are you saved? Yes, because you show mercy. Now, what's the word, Pastor? Do it and you will live. Come on, stand on your feet today. I want to pray today. There's so many people, I got to say this, and this is not a judgment statement, this is an observation. There's so many of us in this world who walk around, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. The, the reason why, and if you look at the data, Christianity in this country is on a decline, sharp. First time in this country that we've hit these numbers where 50% or less of the country believes that they're in any kind of faith, religious relationship. A lot of people in this country are sick of Christians. I am too. <laughs> Especially the kind that we see paraded across our screens and in the media. And it's not just, but just hear me on this. Being a Christian does not give you a right to walk around with your nose up in the air. Think that somehow, somehow you have a right to destroy and condemn and use your faith as a hammer to bludgeon people. No, that's not the way of the carpenter. That's not the way of Jesus. 
It does, though, give you a responsibility to be an ambassador for things like love and compassion and mercy. Oh, my God. What would our world look like if we took Jesus seriously? I'm not talking about going to church. I'm talking about let the teachings of this poor Palestinian carpenter become infused in your life so that you begin to live life in a different way. A few weeks ago, we had our fundraiser for the Hope Center, and we, we were just at, there were many people there at the fundraiser who weren't associated with church or FCBC or anything like that. But they heard us speaking, they heard us talking, heard us speaking about why the Hope Center was important to us because so many of our folk in our communities go without having mental health care. And so offering free mental health care is a way of being, watch this, merciful. And, and, and we were just saying the whole thing, Dr. Green, and we were just sharing. And there was a woman who came to me after, wasn't a member of FCBC, had never been to FCBC. She looked like she was an East Asian woman. And she came to me and she said, I feel so moved. She said, I feel so inspired. Here's what she said. The greatest compliment I've heard in recent months. She said, you make church appealing. You know. and, and, and the truth is, that for so many people, we think that Christianity is what we see paraded in these streets, disguising nationalism and racism. And that's Christianity. I can say unequivocally, it is not. And the truth is, I'm not invested in trying to have a debate about Christianity with anybody. Because there's no debate for me. These teachings, these stories of this man called Jesus, were designed not to make you feel good every Sunday and leave here feeling charged and I feel good, I can face the world, I can handle it. It can do that. But they're designed to help you say, hold on, my life needs to look different. How I walk needs to look different. How I show up needs to look different. This ain't about titles and I get turned off when people meet me and I introduce myself. I say Mike Walren. I don't say pastor or reverend. Because on my birth certificate, it don't say pastor. Those are titles that at the end of the day may not really mean much. Especially if those titles not undergirded with love and compassion and mercy. No. This is a different kind of place, intentionally so. And it ain't everybody's cup of tea. But if you want to live the life you were created to live and love beyond the limits of your prejudice and understand that your biggest responsibility is to serve other human beings, you are in the right place. All right? So, so, so here's what I want to do. 
I want to pray today with those who can be honest enough to say, Pastor, I need a little help with this mercy thing. Now, hold on. Why? I've been hurt so much and taken advantage of so much. This is specific that I walk around with my guard up all the time. Afraid to let people get close because I don't want to be hurt again. The truth is, love is like that. And I know we don't like to hear it, but love can be terrifying because if it's really love, love puts you in position to be vulnerable to possibly be hurt again. That's why it's terrifying. If you're here today, and being merciful, this challenges you, not in a judgmental way because because it's been hard to get past your hurts. I want you to come down today. I want you to be honest today. Because we're going to talk to God together. Because God knows that I've been here still dealing with some stuff. God, I, it's, it's like the man with the son who was possessed. He says, Jesus asked him, do you believe that I can heal your son? The man said, Lord, I believe, but what? Help my unbelief. No, we believe. We believe. This is not that you don't believe, but sometimes life has hit us in such a way that it makes certain aspects of this journey difficult. And sometimes being merciful becomes difficult, especially when you live life carrying heavy wounds and heavy hurts. It becomes difficult, and, and, and that's completely understandable because, because sometimes the hurt we feel and the healing we need can prevent us from sharing. But, but I love what I heard Pastor Dez say this morning. Here it is. You can be a work of art and a work in progress at the same time. So, 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 so those who've come down here, don't feel, oh my God, no. Here's what you're saying, Pastor, I'm a work of art and a work in progress. And, and that, that work in progress every now and again needs a little extra help, a little extra attention, a little extra nudge to be fully, I believe, who God has created me to be. Now, those of you who are still there or standing, your responsibility is to pray for those who've come, those who are in the aisle, those who are in front. Pray, pray that they, they can continue to grow in this journey and grow stronger in how they express their love. This walk is difficult. Make no mistakes about it. It's difficult because it is counterintuitive to the ways of the world that we see every day. That's what makes this difficult. But at the same time, it can revolutionary and revolutionize the way we function in this world. Come on, let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you today, oh God. Thank you. Because so God, so many people in this world have been turned off by those of us who claim to be Christians 
Because many of us have forgotten what is at the heart of this movement, this walk, this journey, love and compassion and mercy. And the truth is mercy and compassion and all the other things that come as gifts are birthed out of that radical revolutionary love. So God, as we come today, as those of us who've come down today, we come not because we're not loving, not because we don't know love, not because we're not merciful. God, we just need a little help sometimes to go deeper in our journey and deeper in our walk. And the good news today, oh God, is that many of us have come because we carry heavy burdens and weight of wounds and pain and hurt. And we don't want to be hurt anymore. Here's the good news, oh God, that while you are opening our heart up to be more merciful, you are healing a heart that has been broken. We believe that today and we receive that, oh God. So God, let your spirit and hand of comfort move through us. We can feel the warmth of your presence and the joy of your presence, oh God. That we can no longer allow things on the outside to determine how we feel about ourselves and how we feel showing up in this world. That we will be who you called us to be because it is the best of who we are, the best of our humanity. So God, use us while you're working on us. Use us while you're healing us. Use us while you're bandaging our emotional wounds, oh God. Because while we're being healed, we also want you to get the glory out of our lives. We thank you, God. We honor you, Lord. And we thank you, oh God, that you've been merciful to us. You haven't given up on us. And for that, we are grateful. We are grateful. We love you, God. We honor you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. And we say amen. 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 Come on, get somebody an elbow. Hug, your, hug yourself today. Listen. And one, one more thing before our offering. Many of you know, don't understand. Some people ask, Pastor, we don't open the doors of the church for members. No, we stopped doing membership in 2019 because the way I see it, all of us are part of this family. Every single one of us. You don't have to walk down an aisle. You don't, you're part of the family. But we do offer baptism. So if you're here today and you have never been baptized, You've never experienced baptism. That means you've had a public profession of faith and part of the Jesus movement. Today, after service is over, come right down to my left, your right, and our all-in team will be over here with their nice purple shirts. I think they're purple. Yep. Yeah, they got the Live, Love, Serve shirts on today. You can join them over there. Amen. Come on, give the Lord a hand clap of praise today. Amen. Yes. Listen, beloved. We're about to leave in seven minutes. For real, for real. It's giving time. Amen. And let me tell you something. I got to say this. Um, I've been here 18 years. I said that at the beginning. But let me tell you what I thank God for. Is this church the best? Are we do we give the best we can give? Not all. No, we don't. That's real. 
Jesus. We don't. We don't. But here's what I will say. That everything that God has led me to do in these 18 years, we've been able to do because of your support and your generosity. And I thank God for that. I thank God for that. So if you're at home watching us, it's an opportunity for you to give. You'll see the QR code on the screen. You can hit it from home, too, to support us. We'll put that on the screen if you're here today and you didn't get a generosity card, I believe. Uh, Deacon Dawn, the, Deacon Dawn, she don't even hear her name. Deacon Dawn. Dawn. <laughs> That's you folk. You don't hear your name. I want to make sure that all the us have the generosity cards, right? Good, good, good. So if you need a generosity card with the QR code, you can get that. Or they'll put it on the screen. You can hit it right there. And we'll give you a couple of minutes to give today. Amen. So if you, or you may be someone who already has the link, your party already, recurring giver, please do that. This is our way of trying to do contactless giving for now. Amen. And you will notice if you've been paying attention to the news, you see that the COVID rates are what? Going back up. This thing is here to stay in some ways. We don't want to always admit that, but it's here. I've spoken to doctors who will say, this is not going anywhere anytime soon. And so we still have to be vigilant. We can't drop our guards because here's what happens. The minute we drop our guards is when a different variant comes. And the good news is this variant of Omicron is more transmissible, not as deadly. But that doesn't mean a deadly one is not around the corner. So we have to be vigilant. Amen. And we will continue to take those precautions. Now, for those of you who say, listen, Pastor, I ain't in all that technology. I ain't got time to be scanning no QR code. We have our trustees here down front. If you need an envelope or you just feel like making your contribution, you can come down to the trustees in front uh, on your way out today. and You can leave that. Amen. But let's just say a prayer over this giving time and then we'll go right to our live and five. God, thank you for those who are able to give today. Thank you for the resources that you consistently supply for FCBC to carry out the vision you've given us, oh God. Thank you for those who don't just give, but who give, oh God, in abundance at times, who give a little bit more than they expect, oh God, because it's that extra act of generosity that enables us to touch more, reach more, and to expand our capability of transforming this world, oh God. God, we are disciples who are committed to changing this world. We will do it every way we can in our lives and with our lives, oh God. We love you, God. So we ask that you bless and multiply as we seek to honor the call in our lives. We love you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the FCBC NYC podcast. We hope that what you heard was informative and inspiring and in some way created a space for you to have a creative encounter with God. You can follow us on social media and on the internet at fcbcnyc.org. Please follow and also contribute. If you've been blessed by what you heard, support us financially that we may continue to offer these podcasts. Thank you again, and we look forward to you tuning back in in the future.